I don't know if the band had this in mind when they chose that last song for us to sing before the sermon, but I, I was really struck as we were singing it, because I don't know if you know this, that, that song is based on a passage in Ezekiel chapter 37, where God has the prophet Ezekiel go into this valley, and, and God's like, look around, what do you see? And Ezekiel's like, it's just a bunch of dead, dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel says, God, only you know. And God says, all right, here, here's what I want you to do, Ezekiel. I want you to speak to the bones. And so Ezekiel just starts preaching to this valley of dead, dry bones. And as he's speaking, the bones start coming up and they start coming together. And then they start growing muscles and tendons and organs and flesh. And all of a sudden they're alive again. And it's this amazing, powerful picture of the fact that God's word brings life. And in today's passage, we have one of the most incredible scenes in the Bible. Moses makes this bold, audacious request of God to show me your glory. And when God does this, God gives Moses a sermon. He speaks his words to Moses, and it, it actually gives Moses life in a similar way to what happens in Ezekiel chapter 37. And so we're going to dive in and look at this passage today, look at what what God says to Moses in this interaction and, and how this interaction plays out in Exodus chapters 33 and 34. And what we're going to see is that seeing God's glory leads to faith. Seeing God's glory leads to faith. And I guess in light of that song, we could also add in and spiritual life and vitality. And what we're going to see today is the revelation of God's glory, the paradox of God's glory, and the response to God's glory. So before we jump in and look at the passage, let's, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the fact that your spirit is at work in our world today, that he's at work in our lives, in our church, drawing us to yourself, convicting us of, of your truth, helping us to see how beautiful and amazing you are. I pray that you would really be at work today, giving us a greater appreciation for you, a greater love for you, a greater trust for you. Help us to see and love your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're starting out looking at the revelation of God's glory. Today's passage is this back and forth interaction between God and Moses. And to understand it, we need to look at some backstory. So backstory, as we've talked about the past couple of weeks, Israel slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God rescues them. It's amazing. He brings them out to the wilderness, to Mount Sinai, and he tells them, I want you to be my special people. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will be my representatives to the rest of the world. Israel says, great, we're in. And, and so a covenant, God's making a covenant with his people. A covenant is a deeply intimate and personal, yet legally binding agreement between two parties. So in our world, you can think of this like marriage. That's probably the, the most common covenant that we interact with on a regular basis. God is establishing a relationship with his people similar to marriage. It's deeply intimate and personal and yet legally binding at the same time. And just like with marriage, they have a ceremony to, to initiate this covenant. So the ceremony starts with God appearing on the mountaintop in clouds and thunder and lightning and speaking to his people in a booming voice, telling them the Ten Commandments, which we looked at last week. After the Ten Commandments, the Israelites turn to Moses and they say, hey, God's way too terrifying for us. 
we can't handle any more of this. Here's what we need you to do. You go up the mountain and talk to God. Then you come back down, tell us whatever he says, and we're going to do it, okay? So Moses goes up the mountain, and he spends 40 days on top of the mountain just getting the commands from God as part of this ceremony to initiate the covenant. But the Israelites are all down at the bottom of the mountain. And a week goes by, two weeks go by, three weeks go by. We don't know how many weeks go by before someone finally says, hey, I don't think Moses is coming back because he's been gone for a really long time. And if Moses is dead and isn't coming back, this God that he was teaching us about probably has abandoned us. We need new gods. So they go to Moses' brother Aaron and they say, hey, we need new gods. You make us a new God. Aaron collects all of their gold jewelry, throws it into the fire, melts it down, pulls it out, and shapes it into a golden calf. And he holds it up in front of them and says, here, O Israel, is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now, the ceremony is not even over, and they're already breaking the first two commandments. Do not have any other gods before me, and do not make for yourselves any idols. If you, if you want a picture of how horrendous and, and terrible this is, imagine you're at a wedding, and in the middle of the wedding, wedding ceremony, as, you know, like someone's grandma comes up to pray for the couple and prays this long five-minute prayer, the bride looks over at one of the groomsmen and says, let's get out of here. And as the grandma is praying for the couple, the bride and the groomsmen run off to the broom closet to have sex in the middle of her wedding ceremony. It's horrible. It's offensive. It's terrible. It's, it's awful. And that's exactly what the Israelites just did to God. In the middle of the ceremony, they turn their back on him. And in response, God is furiously angry, just as that husband would be when he found his wife in the broom closet. God says to Moses, let me at him. I'm going to wipe out the entire nation and restart with you. And Moses says, no, God, you can't do that. Because if you do that, what will the other nations say? They know you brought us out of Egypt, but if you bring us out of Egypt and then wipe us out, they're all going to think that you're some powerless, no good God. For the sake of your glory and your name, you need to keep this nation alive. So God says, fine, I'll keep the nation alive, but here's what's going to happen. You guys, I promised you this promised land. I'm going to keep my promise. You guys go up there. You take over the land. I'm going to send an angel with you who's going to wipe out everyone in the land so you can have that land, but I'm not going with you. And again, Moses says, no, God, you cannot do this. How are the, how are the nations going to know that we're your people unless you're there with us? We need you with us if we're going to do what we're supposed to be doing as your people. And so God says, fine, I'll go with you. And Moses and God, they have this intense back and forth, back and forth, back and forth interaction. And, and eventually Moses says, I want proof, God. You say that we have your favor. You, you say that we're your special people, but I want you to do something that I can see and feel to prove it to me. And Moses says, God, show me your glory. That's how I will know that you truly love me. And on one level, this request that Moses makes, it's actually, I think, the deepest desire of every human heart. Even those who, who aren't Christians, even those who may not even say they believe in God, we have this, this deep desire inside us for something more. I have a friend 
who before COVID every year, he would take a, a spiritual pilgrimage to Tibet where he would bike around the country. I know other people who, who practice things like meditation or who like to go out in the morning to watch beautiful sunrises because there's something in their hearts that longs for this great, deep, intense beauty and, and power and, and something. They don't even know what, but there's something inside the human heart that just longs for God. We know deep down that there is a God, that we are designed to know him. And in the words of St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. This desire to see God's glory, it's hardwired into all of our hearts. And, and whether we're Christians or not, we want this desire to be fulfilled. And Moses, in praying this prayer, he's just giving voice to that desire that's so deeply wired into each of us. And I don't know what comes into your mind when you think of God's glory. If you try and like picture God's glory, does anything, anything come up? Probably pretty abstract, right? It, it feels like a really abstract concept and idea. So I've got some definitions for us of some, some different pastors and theologians, how they define God's glory that will hopefully help us understand it more clearly. So first one is from Richard Gaffin. He says, God's glory is his visible and active presence. Helpful, but still kind of vague. Next one. Glory is the weightiness of divine being. That's from Philip Graham Riken. And how about one more? When we speak of God's glory, we are speaking of who God is, what he is like, his distinctive resplendence, what makes God, God. It's from a man named Dane Ortland. So does that actually help anyone to understand what God's glory is? It still feels really abstract to me, probably, probably does to you too, right? Like think about it this way. When Moses says, God, show me your glory, and you just read these definitions of glory, how do you expect God to respond? What do you expect it to look like or sound like? I expect a grand display of power and majesty. You know, like they've got the dark, thick clouds on the mountain with crashing lightning and thunder. And then I would expect out from those clouds, this like glowing, shining, amazing, brilliantly bright presence to appear. Something that like, from the moment you see that, you know, like, this can only be God. He's so real. How, how did I ever question it? How did I ever doubt it? And something overwhelming and overpowering. And that's part of what makes this passage so shocking. Because when God appears to Moses, it's not actually what we may expect. And there are three things I want us to see about God's response to Moses in this passage that'll show us the, the way that God responds to Moses. First, God's response to Moses involves a sovereign self-disclosure. Sovereign self-disclosure. For Moses to have any opportunity to see or know or comprehend who God is, God has to take the initiative to show himself to Moses. And God says this right after Moses prays the prayer. We see in 33:18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And this is it. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. We can't force God to reveal to us who he is or to be gracious to us. 
If God's going to reveal who he is, if God's going to be gracious to us, it is God's choice. God needs to take the initiative if we're going to know who he is. And now I know, yes, Moses started out by praying this prayer to God to show him his glory. But Moses wouldn't have even had that if God hadn't first appeared to Moses in the burning bush several chapters earlier. God takes the initiative to reveal himself. And then even when Moses prays the prayer, his prayer is dead in the water unless God answers, unless God takes the initiative to reveal himself to Moses and show himself who he is. And even in chapter 34, verse five, Moses goes up to the top of the mountain where, where God's presence is. And look what it says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Moses goes up to the mountain where God's presence is. And even on that mountain, he still can do nothing to see or understand who God is until God comes down and descends to him. Every step of this process is completely dependent on God taking the initiative to reveal himself to Moses. It was true then, it's true now. For us to get a glimpse of who God is, we need God to reveal himself to us. Which means that if we want to know God, prayer is so essential. I mean, if you look at this encounter, it's the, it's the result of long, intense times of prayer between Moses and God. If we want amazing encounters with God, we need to be people of prayer. So that's the first thing to see is that it, it, the revelation of God's glory involves sovereign self-disclosure. The second thing about this revelation is that it is overwhelming. If you look at chapter 33, verse 20, God says to Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. God's presence, God's essence. It's so overpowering. It's so great that to look at it will kill you. Like that's, that's a level of power and greatness that, that I can't actually comprehend. If I think about things in our world that are big and powerful and great, one of the biggest things that comes to mind is the sun, right? Can we all agree that's pretty big and powerful? Here's the thing with the sun. If you stare at the sun for a while, not just a, a moment, but for a while, you can go blind. But staring at the sun is not going to kill you. God is so much greater than the sun that one glance at his face and boom, you're dead on the spot. How much greater is God than anything we can comprehend in our universe? So even in today's passage, as Moses gets a glimpse of God's glory, God says it's only his backside, not his face, because to see his face would kill Moses. Now think about what that means for us. It means that we can know God truly, but we can not know him fully. You know, here's the difference. Knowing God truly means we know things that are true about God. Like the things he says about himself in this passage, we can know God's name. We can know some of his attributes, like that he's merciful and gracious and slow to anger. But knowing God fully means we know absolutely everything there is to know about God. And because we are limited human beings, we can't understand the infinite nature of who God is. Because we are sinful human beings, we cannot stand and survive in the presence of God's perfection. Our limited nature and our sinfulness mean that it is not possible for us to know God fully. 
And there are many people in the world today who actually use that as a way of saying, well, that just means we can't know anything about God. You know, if we can't know, we can't know God fully, so Christianity has part of the truth, Hinduism has part of the truth, Islam has part of the truth. Each of them sees part of God, and therefore they're all equally true. We need to accept everyone as valid and everyone as equal. But this, this concept is false because it's assuming that the fact we can't know God truly means we also, or sorry, the fact we can't know God fully means we also can't know God truly. But what the Bible is telling us and what we see in this passage is we can absolutely know God truly, even though it's an incomplete knowledge. And we actually, every day in our world, have have people interact with things that they understand truly, even though they don't understand it fully. You think about chemistry and physics. How do electrons work? No one really knows. We have new theories that come out every year to tell us that this is how they move around an atom, this is how they interact with one, but no one has figured that out. But we still functionally use it every day. We, we know how to use electrons functionally to get atoms to form together into molecules so that we can do different things with those molecules. We can, we can functionally do chemistry and physics in a practical, real-world setting, even though we don't know the full truth, everything there is to know about electrons. And in a similar way, we can know God truly. We can know him enough to have a genuine interaction with him and relationship with him. We can know him enough to say this God is the real God and that one is not because he has revealed himself truly to us in the Bible, even though he hasn't revealed himself fully to us. But we can know him truly. And the third thing to see about God's revelation here is that it is clear. This ties into what I was just saying. The reason we can know God truly is that he tells us clear and understandable things about himself. I mean, look at what he tells Moses here in this passage and through Moses, what he tells us about himself. First, he tells us his name, the Lord, the Lord. This is God's personal covenant name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush when he called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. I am. What does it mean that God is I am, the Lord? It means that God has always existed. Everything else in the universe that exists, exists because of him. God will always exist. God makes covenants with his people and he keeps those covenants. He is trustworthy and reliable. But I mean, if, if he stopped right there, that would be amazing and incredible and that would be enough, right? But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says that he is merciful. A better translation for this word might be compassionate. When God sees us as his children in our weakness, he doesn't point a finger at us and say, shame on you, weakling. No, he's drawn to us in our weakness. He loves us. He shows us compassion. Maybe you can think of it this way. Sometimes I take my son Judah out for a walk and he's pretty good at walking now, but sometimes he trips and falls and he scrapes his knees up and he stands up and he points and he says, knee, because he hurt his knee. Now as a father in that moment, what do I do? Oh, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. No, I pick him up and I hold him and I say, hey, buddy, I'm right here. You're okay. And if he injures himself more badly, is that proper grammar? I don't know. If he injures himself worse, say that he scrapes himself bad enough that he's bleeding. There's blood coming down his leg. And I'm like, man, if I pick that up, that could get on my shirt, that could stain it. That's no good. Don't want that. 
Do I say, okay, I'm going to stay away and just leave you on your own now? No, I'm even faster. Like, come here. You need a hug right now because you are truly hurt. The worse he's injured, the more I'm drawn to show him love and give him a big hug and comfort him. That's how God feels about you. Not just in your physical pain, but, but in your sin and your failure and your weakness. When we mess up, God's heart is drawn to us. He wants to embrace us and show his love because he is merciful or compassionate. He's also gracious. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He blesses us. Our sin deserves death, but he gives us life and abundance. He doesn't want us to face the consequences we deserve. He gives us abundant gifts. He's slow to anger. Now, I know God being angry is not a popular idea today, but but look at this. He is slow to anger. It takes a long time for him to get angry. If you look at the immediate contract, con- context, this contrasts with the next thing he says, that he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God being slow to anger means that when he reacts in anger, it's not just because he lost his temper and couldn't control himself. It's not just that one thing went wrong and boom, I'm done with you. No, God's default setting of his heart is to overflow with love. And it's only after a lot of provoking that his anger comes out. And when it does come out, it's calculated, it's intentional, it's planned, which it's terrifying if you're under his anger, but it's liberating if you know him as your father and you're his child. Our God is slow to anger. What else do we see here? God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This, this word translated here as steadfast love, a better translation may be covenant-keeping love. God is going to keep his covenant that he made with his people, even though they just broke the covenant in the most terrible and offensive way possible. But he abounds in covenant-keeping love. So he's sticking with them. God's character will not allow him to abandon his people. Remember, that's the God who still rules today. Aren't you thankful that he's a God who keeps his covenants, that he's faithful, that he sticks with his people even in their unfaithfulness? And then he says that he's forgiving. In chapter 34, verse 7, he says he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. These each carry different nuances that cover all the different types of wrong actions that we can do in life. God's saying, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how badly you failed. I don't care how badly you messed up. I forgive it all. Every every individual sin, every type of sin, I am a God who forgives. I forgive. I can forgive anything. Our God is a forgiving God. And when we take all these traits and we put them together, what do we get? Rather than some grand, amazing display of power, we get a God who, in the words of Jesus, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, is gentle and lowly in heart. Our God is gentle and lowly in heart. When, when God reveals himself to Moses, it's a reminder of his goodness, and his trustworthiness. It's a reminder that his people can rely on him even in their failure because he is eager to forgive and accept them. See, Moses seeing God's glory, it's not about physically seeing God with his eyes. It's about him coming to know God's perfection and his faithfulness more deeply, especially, especially 
as God's perfection and faithfulness are revealed in salvation and forgiving his people. Instead of giving Moses a picture or a video, God gives him a sermon, which means if we want to know God, we need to listen closely to his words so that we can know him too. That's why I'm always telling you guys, it's so important to read our Bibles. It's so important to come to church because that's how we hear God's words so that we can know him more deeply and have this kind of intimate relationship with him that Moses does. It's amazing, right? But God's revelation of himself is not done yet. There's more that he wants Moses to see. Because if we really want to know God in all his fullness, we also need to understand the paradox of God's glory. See, there's actually one more attribute that God reveals to himself about his glory here to Moses. And in light of everything else, he says, it may seem a bit out of place. Because he says, he will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I was talking to someone from the church this week and they said, you know, as I read this, I just felt uncomfortable. Like, what do I do with this? I have to admit, a lot of times I feel the same way. How can God be forgiving like he was just bragging about and say, I'm not going to let the guilty go free. How can God be forgiving and just? Isn't the whole point of forgiveness that you clear the guilty person when they're guilty? How can the forgiving God hold guilty people responsible for what they've done? And even if he's able to do this, how is this good news for Moses right now? Because Moses' people are for sure guilty. Don't these words about God's justice just seal Israel's fate as totally and utterly doomed? Well, to understand this paradox, we need to look at the Bible as a whole. Specifically, we need to look at Jesus we have to understand the substitutionary nature of the gospel. See, in the gospel, Jesus, who is God himself in human flesh, he steps down to earth and he himself pays the price for our sin and rebellion against God. Which again, very unpopular belief in our day and age that God would require a blood sacrifice for sin. But it's completely in line with what the Bible teaches about Jesus. The Bible teaches very clearly the full weight of God's justice for human sin. Every human sin falls on Jesus. We see this prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. We, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's saying all of us have sinned. All of us have turned against God. And, and God, the merciful and gracious God, places our guilt on Jesus so that we can go free. Through the cross, God's able to have full justice against everything that has been done wrong ever. Full justice against the guilty, while at the same time being merciful and gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in covenant-keeping love and faithfulness. And how does he do that? By pouring out his justice upon himself in our place. It means the demands of justice are fulfilled while at the same time we walk free. Isn't that great? God's justice is fulfilled, but we, the guilty ones, can walk free. And if we, we look in the context of today's passage in Exodus, we actually see this substitution connects right in, in the Bible story with this idea of God's glory. Because the book of John starts out with this introduction. He's telling us all about the word. And he's building up, building up, building up. And then he gets to chapter one, verse 14. And he says, the word 
became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Jesus. And then he says, we beheld his glory, like what Moses sees here. But, but they actually saw it in a person who took on flesh, Jesus. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to earth to show us God's glory in human form. And then in John chapter 12, verse 23, it actually specifically directly connects the cross to Jesus' glory. Because Jesus says, the hour has come for the son of man, that's Jesus, to be glorified. Now in John, the hour is always referring to when Jesus goes to the cross. So when Jesus says the hour has come, that's, I'm, it's time for me to die. But instead of saying the hour has come for me to die, he says the hour has come for me to be glorified, which feels wrong because the cross feels like the most non-glorious thing possible, right? But then we look at it in context of this passage where God says, here's my glory, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Where do we see that most fully displayed? In the cross. The cross is the clearest depiction of God's glory because on it, we see all of his attributes, his justice and his forgiveness brought together into one place. Even though it, it seems offensive and, and terrible and not glorious at all, actually the cross is the moment of God's glory. And once we understand God's justice in light of the gospel, it actually reframes the whole idea of God's justice for us because it shows us that God's justice far from being the thing that keeps us from being good news, it's actually another part of the good news. How? Because it gives substance and weight to all of God's other qualities. See, if God's loving and kind, but he's not just, his loving and lovingness and kindness don't cost him anything. But if God's loving and kind and also just, then it costs him to love us. It costs him to be kind to us and to forgive us. And that cost is infinite, but you know what? He was willing to pay it because his love is so deep. His love is not just some fun idea that floats out there and means nothing. No, his love is displayed for us in the most deeply loving act ever that ever happened. It comes at an infinite price to him, but it's a price he was willing to pay because of how deeply he loves us. And once we understand that deep, deep love that God has for us. How do we respond? Let's look at the response to God's glory. And we're going to look at two elements of the proper response to God's glory. First, Moses' response. It says in verse 8 and 9, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I've found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it's a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So what do we see here? Moses, when he sees God's glory, he has a renewed confidence to come to God with boldness. Moses, his response is driven by this confidence that God is pleased with him. And because of that, Moses picks back up his prayer from before with this new confidence that God's gonna listen. And look what he does with his prayer. He is brutally honest about the sins of his nation. He says, it is a stiff-necked people. He doesn't sugarcoat it at all. And not only that, but he, he includes himself in confessing the sins of the nation. He says, pardon our iniquity and our sin. He doesn't say theirs. Like, I mean, think about it. Moses was up on the mountain when all this golden calf stuff was going on. 
He could easily say, God, that's them, that's not me. But he doesn't do that. He includes himself because he knows that he in his heart is just as much of a sinner as everyone else and that he needs God's forgiveness just as much as everyone else. And now that he knows who God is, he feels absolutely no need to try to prove that he's better than everyone else because he knows, yeah, I really am and we all really are that messed up and no amount of our sin and failure can keep us from God's love. So I'm just gonna come to him and be bold and, and brutally honest because I'm confident in his love for me. So church, let me ask you, do you have that level of confidence in God's love for you? Do you feel comfortable coming to God with, with your whole mess? And if not, why not? Is it because somewhere in your heart you feel like God can't handle your mess or he won't forgive it if he sees it? If that's the case, you're not fully believing the gospel. Because the gospel says God sees everything that's wrong with us, all our sin, all our failure, and he still forgives us. The price for all of it has been paid by Jesus. There's nothing you can do that will put you outside of God's ability to forgive you if you repent. On the flip side, there may be some people here who, who don't feel comfortable coming to God and showing him our mess because we actually don't believe we have any mess. I feel like I've done a good job obeying God. I've been great. I read my Bible. I come to church. I don't need to be forgiven for everything because I don't have anything to be forgiven for. And if that's you, you're also failing to believe the gospel because the gospel says all of us are sinners. All of us need repentance, no exceptions. And even once we become Christians, all of us continue to be sinners who need grace and forgiveness every single day. First John 1 John 1.10 says, if you, if you say I don't have any sin, you'd say God's a liar. All of us need forgiveness, but the grace of God given through the cross, it covers all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, all of our failures, which means what's true for Moses is true for us too. Once we understand the character and glory of God, we're set free from posturing and trying to prove we're better than we really are. We can be completely honest about our sin and our failure and our shortcomings because God overflows with mercy and grace. He's just waiting for an invitation to shower them upon us. And then the second thing, the second thing to see here is that we have a future hope that Moses couldn't have even known about in his day. Remember, Moses has this incredibly close personal relationship with God. Exodus 33, 11 says, God used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And despite this closeness, when Moses says, God, show me your glory, God says, no, you can't see it. At least not fully. You can see part of it, but not the full thing. And although Moses couldn't see God's glory fully, the great hope of the Christian is that one day we will. Do you know that? The Bible says what Moses couldn't see here, one day, if we trust in Jesus, one day we will. First John chapter three, verse two says, beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Did you hear that? we shall see him as he is. Not his backside. We will see God face to face. We will see the fullness of his glory. And in that day, not only we will see him, we will become like him because we see him. I know that sounds crazy, but that's from the Bible. The Bible is saying this. When we see God's love, we will become loving. When we see God's perfection, we will become perfect. When we see God's glory, we will become glorious. Does that make you excited? 
If not, I, like you need to stop and ask yourself, why not? Because that is the most incredible, awesome, amazing news ever, is it not? Church, God's glory, the essence of who he is, it's probably not what we expected it to be. He's not standing above us, high and mighty, speaking down, disappointed about how badly we failed him. No, he comes down to our level. He relates to us so we can know him as his children and his friends. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in covenant-keeping love and faithfulness. And yeah, he is just, but his justice only serves to show us how amazing his other attributes are because he bore that weight of justice on himself so that we can go free and we can know him as gracious and merciful and loving. And like Moses, the Bible promises, if we trust in Jesus, one day we will see his glory. But instead of seeing his back, we're going to see his face. He's going to look at us with joy and excitement because he loves us. It's going to be awesome. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to Moses, for revealing yourself to us in Jesus. Thank you for your word that tells us who you are and for what a gift it is to to have it in our pockets every day as we go around town. God, that's so amazing that we can just know you. We can access your truth so easily in our day and age. Forgive us for the times we've taken that for granted and ignored it. God, I pray that you would give us a hunger and thirst to know you and chase after you more deeply each day. God, we love you, but help us to love you more. God, we want to see your glory. Teach us to see your glory each day. In Jesus' name, amen.